Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum. The COVID-19 pandemic has had the effect of accelerating and amplifying a number of pre-existing global dynamics and trends. On our next two podcast episodes, we plan to dedicate attention to the challenges facing the media sector. Changes ushered in by the digital revolution have severely tested independent media models around the world. Challenges to the integrity of independent media are longstanding, however, predating the rise of online media and the financial crisis of 2008. In our new environment, the economic knock-on effects of the global pandemic are exerting powerful, adverse impact on the independent media sector. Meanwhile, authoritarian regimes in Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, and elsewhere have invested seriously in efforts to inject a mix of authoritarian propaganda and disinformation into many local media environments. In this increasingly crowded information landscape, independent media outlets that report on local issues contextualize current events, and provide critical investigative reporting are struggling to survive and reach audiences. In the coming period, the pandemic is likely to further intensify many of these critical challenges. For part one of two conversations we plan to conduct on the changing global media landscape, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, Jamie Fly, president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, also known by its acronym RFERL. Jamie is joining us from Prague, where he's based. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jamie, let me just kick things off by asking you, for listeners who are unfamiliar, to tell us a little bit about RFERL and your mission and the types of stories you're currently pursuing. So RFERL was originally two separate institutions, Radio Free Europe, which broadcast during the Cold War uh, to the Soviet satellite states. Uh, and Radio Liberty, which uh, broadcast to the Soviet Union. Both were headquartered in Munich for most of the Cold War period uh, and eventually were joined together into one entity. And the mission of RFERL is to really provide uh, local surrogate journalism to publics that otherwise don't have that option. Uh, We operate in uh, 22 countries across Eurasia, currently 26 languages, through which we cover news and information for publics that often only have the alternative of state-sponsored media. This has been a service that we've played for the last 70 years. And even though we're facing different challenges now with different types of pressures on media, as was mentioned earlier, we still believe that the mission that we provide on a daily basis of objective news and information journalists providing that coverage in local languages is more important than ever. And so when you use the term surrogate, you're essentially saying that your journalists are able to act as surrogates for those in the region that are unable to report freely on local political and other events. We cover stories that uh, either would not be covered by state-run media because they run counter to the messaging that a particular government is trying to put out, um, or when there are independent media options in the countries we're operating in, often those independent media outlets are under such pressure that they have to self-censor. They can't cover certain hot-button political issues. 
They can't do long-form investigations into sensitive political topics that might touch on corruption, for instance. These are all issues that because we are independent, uh, because, quite frankly, we're supported by the U.S. Congress, which is our primary funder, it allows us the freedom to operate uh, and to tackle issues that otherwise would be off limits. And uh, you know, our audience, I think, appreciates that in pretty much every market that, that we're engaged in. And Jamie, you alluded to some of the challenges that have emerged in the most recent past for media independence. These are challenges that have been underway for quite some time. What do you see in the current environment as the biggest threat to independent journalism, and how are you and your colleagues responding to them? So one of the things that you mentioned earlier are uh, the changing forces in the media landscape, and that has been underway for quite some time, even prior to COVID. Um, Obviously, there's always an issue when you have state-run media, which is willing to devote significant resources in a particular market. But in countries where there has been independent press in recent decades, uh, a more recent trend is media consolidation, uh, partly because of the same market forces that have taken hold in the United States with local media increasingly uh, floundering and not able to survive economically. We've seen similar trends in uh, parts of our coverage area, including here in Central Europe. And uh, that media consolidation has created opportunities for political forces to exploit the dwindling number of media outlets. Sometimes you see oligarchs who have a friendly relationship with a government buy up one of the few remaining independent media outlets and change the editorial line. You see outside forces, whether the Russian, Chinese, perhaps, make investments in the media, local media landscape with the interest in either uh, changing the editorial line completely or sometimes taking them away from doing hard news. So that's been around for a while, even pre-coronavirus. I think the thing that concerns me just in recent weeks, we've started to see that coronavirus is bringing its own economic pressures onto local media. And again, I think some of this is happening in the U.S. We've seen layoffs in many newsrooms of local uh, news outlets in the United States uh, with advertising dollars drying up just in the last several weeks alone. Our sense is that's going to continue this trend of a smaller and smaller number of media options for the consumer. And that's going to be a challenge across Eurasia, just like uh, it has been in the United States and in in parts of Western Europe. The problem is that unless you have outlets like uh, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, the BBC, other Western-funded options for people, you know, ultimately the consumers are the ones who lose out on this uh, when they don't have that choice. And ultimately, there are certain issues that are not going to be covered by the remaining media outlets that can survive economically. And a part of this equation, certainly over the last several years, has been that one of the media and information options that's becoming more widespread has been Russian state media which not only dominates within the Russian language space, but also since the annexation of Crimea, certainly has been more active throughout Europe, even farther afield in places like Latin America. How do you see Russia's engagement in the media space from RFERL's perspective? Yeah, obviously it's a concerning trend. And, and like you said, this has been development that's been underway for quite some time. 
Sometimes the influence is on the covert side, and it's through friendly local oligarchs who may have a pro-Moscow perspective, uh, buying up media outlets or kind of influencing the editorial line of local media. And then obviously there are Russian outlets like RT, and in most of the markets where we operate, uh, the more likely competitor of ours would be Sputnik. Uh, who are very active. They have a lot of money. Uh, I always like to say that the authoritarians are unfortunately outspending not just the United States, but pretty much every Western democracy that funds independent media. And they move into markets and uh, they often come in and buy up a lot of the, the media landscape. They won't just set up shop and you know hire a small a handful of journalists, they'll sometimes come in and, and really provide, given the broader economic trends, the only viable outlet for journalists who are looking for work. They'll hire journalists who don't necessarily always come in with a predisposition to parrot Moscow's line, but they'll set up shop, buy out whole newsrooms, and then slowly start to push their propaganda. Now, obviously, RT, Sputnik, all of the domestic Russian outlets have a lot of coordination uh, with Russian authorities about their editorial line, about the types of articles that they're going to push on a daily basis. What sets us apart is our arm's length relationship with the U.S. government, despite the funding that we receive from the U.S. Congress. We have codified in law editorial independence from the U.S. government. It is actually illegal for U.S. officials to call me up and as president of RFRL and try to tell us what to cover. And we jealously guard that editorial independence. And it's in every single one of our services, this understanding that we hire good journalists to do objective reporting, to follow the facts wherever they lead, to decide for those local audiences what stories they want to cover. And we're not going to, even those of us in management, meddle in those sorts of decisions, which I think is fundamentally a different approach to this business and the way that the, the Russian outlets operate. Jamie, you touched on a number of trends there, in particular what we've seen recently in the area where RFERL works, which spans from the Balkans in Eastern Europe all the way to South Asia and beyond. There are a number of authoritarian regimes, principally Russia, but also Azerbaijan, Iran, Turkey, the PRC, that are trying to control and manipulate narratives. And because they have coordination with the state and they're not worried about things like editorial independence, they can sometimes amplify their narratives quite effectively. And these narratives don't always get called out for being propaganda or disinformation. I was wondering, from your perch, how do you see this problem of authoritarian narrative amplification and what can more editorial independent news outlets do to try to combat this? It's a good question. I think it's a it's been a significant challenge even before coronavirus, and I think coronavirus has highlighted the the dangers of of this sorts uh, sort of disinformation heavy environment that exists across much of Eurasia. And as you mentioned, it's not just the Russians; it's not even just the the Chinese. There are a lot of smaller actors that obviously care very much about the, their regime's ability to maintain their grip on power. So information control. Uh, is central to their efforts. We have an Iranian service, for instance. We have an Azeri service that has to operate out of Prague uh, because we were kicked out of Azerbaijan a number of years ago because of our reporting. Same with Uzbekistan. 
uh, Turkmenistan, uh, where we don't have an office, uh, despite the fact that we have a service for similar reasons. Um, so th- these regimes, they try different things. They set up state-sponsored media. Some of them fund that uh, state-sponsored media very well, even though they're aiming just at their local audience. If they can't, though, drive out every single independent actor, what they try to do is they try to just promote disinformation. Uh, ranges from you know, attacks on opponents, conspiracy theories. Sometimes there's a geopolitical element if they're pushing a certain narrative related to external actors uh, and trying to demonize maybe the opposition and claim that they're just stooges supported by some foreign actor, a neighbor with an agenda, or perhaps the United States or, or some other external force. And that's all part of their effort to maintain total control. What is concerning is when you have crises like we've seen in recent months with this pandemic, that creates an environment, as we've even seen in the U.S., I think, on social media to a certain extent. Once you create that toxic atmosphere, it's very difficult to, in moments of crisis, suddenly flip a switch and only tell the truth, uh, convince the public to believe the messaging that's coming out. Once you start to sow those seeds of doubt and uncertainty, people start to question everything that's put in front of them to a certain extent. They might be more susceptible to conspiracy theories. Um, And in this case, in the case of coronavirus, it really has public health implications. And so we've seen this challenge that some of these countries have had to navigate I'm thinking across our coverage area, we've really seen interesting examples in Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Belarus, Russia, when initially the regimes were in total denial about the pandemic, questioning the science, raising doubts about whether the virus even exists, or if it does, it's some sort of foreign plot to undermine our security. And then when the crisis really hits and the cases start to accumulate, they have to pivot quickly in their own messaging to try to tell the public what to do to keep themselves safe, stay at home, follow government guidance. And it's difficult to navigate that transition. And so we've seen a number of those countries struggle with this challenge just in recent weeks. And uh, most of them really not, obviously not get it correct. Uh, Just today, Vladimir Putin, I believe, did another press conference now trying to tell the Russian people to go back to work. Uh, Well, coronavirus, according to a lot of the statistics that have come out thus far, doesn't even appear to have peaked yet. Um, But it leads to a lot of muddled, mixed messaging to the public, which ultimately, in the case of a pandemic, puts people's lives at risk and could then lead to broader political repercussions if the public realizes that their governments have not handled this situation adeptly. We're either slow to respond or for a variety of reasons, we're not being honest with them about what was actually coming their way. Well, you picked up on a really important point, which is that sometimes these questions of, let's say, news consumer trust in media institutions are treated as some sort of esoteric topic that's relevant only to people that care about press freedom or democracy. I think in the current environment, we can see that the lack of public trust in information, precisely because of these trends you've described, can actually redound to public health in really negative ways. And I'm wondering if you're able to identify or see any ways to bolster public trust in credible information and or how would we amplify more credible information in this very confusing and chaotic information environment? 
Well, what we've turned to at uh, RFERL during the pandemic is uh, we've obviously refocused much of our coverage on just basic information about coronavirus. We still, if there's something happening politically in a country or a major catastrophe, we'll still cover it, obviously, even during this time. But the vast majority of our services have focused on putting out public service information in all of our local languages uh, about how to protect yourselves, how to protect your families, basic hygiene issues, maintaining cleanliness in your home or your work, if you have to go into work, um, putting out facts about how the virus spreads from one person to another. These are all things that may seem very simple, but in a lot of the countries we operate in, the government, uh, the governments have been very slow to actually put out that sort of, of messaging. We found that our audiences have responded significantly to this approach. And in the last two months here during the pandemic, despite the fact that many of our journalists were also forced to work from home or had limited freedom of mobility because of lockdowns and, and some of the, um, you know, across the 20 bureaus where we, we are have people physically operating in country, our numbers have been the highest ever across the last two months. Um, so we feel that, you know, in a time of need, audiences have understood our brand, understood what we stand for, and have come to us because we're putting out that basic health information. So that's been a positive thing to see the audience respond in that way. I will say that journalists, I think, have played an important role in many countries in documenting the spread of the coronavirus, the missteps of some governments. Outside our coverage area, I think going back to the original cases in China, there are a lot of compelling stories emerging from local, some cases citizen journalists, starting to report on what was truly going on in Wuhan in the early months about the inept government response, about the efforts then to suppress information about the, the virus and about how it spread. Information which would have been, if it you know, were allowed to be freely distributed, could have saved probably more lives inside China. And if there was more reporting that reached the outside world, could have probably helped the international community get a head start in sharing information about this virus with other countries who could then have hopefully taken decisions, maybe stopped some travel earlier on really to have prevented the spread. So I think journalists played an important role in trying to do some of that in China. We've seen through our journalists on the front lines them playing a similar role in places like Belarus, where we were documenting the early cases when the government was in, still in denial about uh, whether there were any cases. In Tajikistan, where we're under constant pressure and our bureau is constantly facing the threat of potential closure a government denying accreditation to our journalists. We've been reporting this story doggedly, tracking cases which the government still tries to refer to as pneumonia rather than coronavirus because of the political repercussions. So across our coverage area, from Russia to Central Asia, places like Belarus and Ukraine, our journalists have really been on the front lines reporting about the fact that coronavirus is reaching those countries, the public health information that people need to arm themselves with, to protect themselves, uh, and then highlighting when governments fail to deliver on their promises to keep their people as you know, healthy and safe as possible. And so I think journalists uh, in many places are, are really the unsung heroes of, 
of this pandemic. So, Jamie, you've made a powerful case for the importance of independent media and information generally, and specifically in the current global health crisis. You also laid out earlier the ways in which authoritarian actors have been, through their use of extensive resources, muddying the waters and otherwise manipulating the information space. I think many people were surprised and caught off guard going back a number of years at the extent to which Russia would invest and dedicate resources to these ends. And today, China is increasingly doing so. What would you say looking forward in the coming term that people should be keeping an eye out for in terms of the bigger challenges to the information space? I think, as, as you mentioned, I think China, for me, is one that we're paying increased attention to here at RFERL, which sounds a little bit odd because we don't actually broadcast in Mandarin or to China. But because we cover all of Eurasia and we operate in markets that border China, China has been playing an increasingly important role across much of our coverage area, both as a, a financial actor, a political actor. And I think we increasingly see China playing a role as an information actor. Certainly before COVID-19 and this pandemic, we saw small signs that China was starting to try to influence the narrative about its own policies in many of those countries, from Central Asia to the Balkans, again to Russia and Central Europe. But they were doing so in a very careful, measured way. They would cultivate local journalists. Uh, as I would travel to our bureaus and talk to our staff, I'd hear stories of local media outlets or state-run outlets being invited to send their journalists on junkets to China, where obviously they were presented with a particular viewpoint about Chinese policy. There were some shadowy connections to, again, some local oligarchs who would maybe buy a stake in a, a supposedly independent media company. But with COVID-19, I think we've seen the Chinese kind of step out of the shadows and start to adopt some of the much more aggressive disinformation tactics that the Russians have used for quite some time. Uh, this certainly was the case here in Central Europe, partly to highlight China's narrative about its supposed turning of the corner after it claimed to have gotten things under control inside China with its own response to the pandemic. And then it's aggressive equipment diplomacy, sending shipments to a number of countries, including here in the Czech Republic, but also Hungary, Serbia, and then promoting a narrative of China, the benefactor, coming to help you at this moment of need, mixed in with some of the traditional conspiracy theories that the Russians love to, to use to sow chaos and to divide. So in the case of the Chinese tactics, some of it was aimed at the United States, even sometimes amplifying Russian narratives about the origins of the virus, blaming the United States for supposedly developing the virus or bringing it to China, promoting that sort of narrative. But then also uh, sowing dissension within the EU and trying to pit individual member states against each other. About a month to six weeks ago, we saw a lot of this messaging here in Central Europe at a moment when Italy was really suffering. There were individual campaigns in places like Poland, the Czech Republic, and in Italy itself trying to portray every EU member state as looking out just for its own interests and neglecting the other or sometimes even being accused of taking actions to undermine shipments that were intended for another recipient in the EU so we've really seen the Chinese take the gloves off, I, I think, in recent weeks. And what's going to be interesting is whether this is the new normal and whether they start to apply these sorts of tactics 
across all of the strategic arena in which they've already been engaged financially and politically. So at RFERL, we're prioritizing our coverage of China's influence, and we've started that even before COVID. We've ramped it up because of what we've seen during this moment. And part of that is uh, making sure that more journalists are trained to understand Chinese influence, to accurately cover China's objectives in individual countries. And so that's going to be one of our, our priorities going forward. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Sitting at uh, the top of RFERL, I never lack things to read, given all of the content we're producing across 26 languages every day. One thing I've been reading a lot of recently, there's a lot of debate about, obviously, whether early on authoritarians showed themselves better suited to tackle a pandemic like COVID-19 than democracies. Obviously, the truth is much more mixed, as we've now seen, uh, as many democracies have handled the challenge quite adeptly. But just as a kind of uh, information point related to that, I've been reading a lot of our Russian service, Radio Svoboda's coverage of the pandemic hitting Russia, which I would recommend to your listeners. Uh, We've been producing some groundbreaking reporting about the conditions, for instance, in Russian hospitals, the lack of personal protective equipment, and some of the abysmal situations facing Russians who come down with coronavirus. Um, These reports have been so damning that we even got threatened by the Russian uh, media regulator Roskomnadzor with a potential threat of taking down our website if we didn't remove uh, some of that reporting, which we did not remove. Um, But I think it just goes to show how sensitive the Russian authorities are to these sorts of real-life accounts about what's actually happening in the age of coronavirus right now in Russia. So I'd I'd recommend people check out uh, Radio Svoboda's portion of our site on rfurl.org. And one other thing that I've been reading, just because I always try to read something that is different than what I work on on a daily basis at this point, is a a book by Peter Hessler called The Buried in Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution, which is a fascinating firsthand look back at a time during the Arab Spring when Peter Hessler, who also writes for The New Yorker, moved his family to Cairo uh, and his observations about Egyptian society during that period. And given everything that we've gone through since, I think there's a lot that we can still learn from those years with the Egyptian uh, revolutions, the uprising in Syria, about the potential for future democracy movements to succeed in other authoritarian states. Great. Thanks for that, Jamie. Let's turn now to Shanti. I'm reading an interesting report from the social network analysis firm Graphica about the Facebook takedown of over 500 pages, groups, and accounts that it attributed to the Islamic Republic of Iran Broadcasting Corporation, or IRIB, the Iranian state broadcaster. According to the Graphica report, which is called Iran's Broadcaster, Inauthentic Behavior, the network posted not only about Iranian concerns like the country's enmity with Israel and Saudi Arabia, but also more far-flung and unexpected topics like the Occupy movement of 2012 and the Scottish independence referendum of 2014. Interestingly, about three years ago, the network also built out a portfolio of accounts focused on events in Africa, which had by the time of takedown become a big part of its activity. One really fascinating point is that this network apparently targeted the U.S. and the U.K. with fake accounts, memes, and cartoons as early as 2012 to 2014. 
While the analysis shows minimal evidence of impact, it does confirm that there was an attempt at foreign interference in Western democratic exercises as far back as 2012, which is a full electoral cycle before the Russian interference of 2016. And for my part, I'm reading something called Russia's Footprint in the Western Balkan Information Environment. It's a set of reports produced by NATO's Strategic Communications Center of Excellence, looking at how Russia's interests and influence toolboxes exploiting vulnerabilities in the Western Balkans context and making them even more susceptible to hostile influence. I think that to the extent Russia's media activities continue in this space, it speaks to the need for independent media and information in a region where such information is ever harder to produce. So I'd like to take this opportunity to really thank Jamie Fly again for taking his time and speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, and to learn more about Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's coverage of the region spanning from Balkans in Eastern Europe to Russia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, and South Asia, visit their website at www.rferl.org. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalathal with Christopher Walker and Jamie Fly. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on the changing global media landscape and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.